This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! If you do make that discovery, then I think it's one of the it's one of the biggest things you know that we as a species would ever have achieved, and I think it would change a lot of things about how we think about our, ourselves and our place in the in the galaxy and in the universe. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Helen Glenny, Editorial Assistant at BBC Focus magazine. When you look up into the night sky, do you ever wonder if we're alone on Earth? Could it be that we're the only intelligent life forms orbiting one of the 100 billion stars in our Milky Way? With numbers so vast, it seems impossible to believe that there are no other beings, little and green or not, going through the same experiences as we are on Earth. But as of yet, we know nothing. This week, we talked to Mike Garrett, the director of the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, about the different methods of searching for extraterrestrial life, why we've yet to find anything, and what it means if we discover we're not the only ones sending messages to the stars. Here's sciencefocus.com editor Al McNamara talking to Mike Garrett. So you're, you specialise, your, your specialist is the search for alien intelligence. Um, how are you searching for aliens now that's different to how we've ever done it in the past? Well, I think we are, we are looking at the, the potential effects of aliens um, in a wide range of different sort of astronomical data sets, 
Um, traditionally, of course, people have been looking in the radio to see if they can they, they can see sort of the signatures of um, radio signals that were generated artificially, and so by some other um, technical civilization. I think that's still a very sort of valid way of, of of looking for potentially, you know, extraterrestrial um, intelligence in the universe. But um, there's there's all sorts of effects that that aliens could have on astronomical data. Um, for example, um, if you have a very advanced civilization and they use a lot of energy, then you would expect to see that as an enhancement in the infrared emission that they produce, for example, in, in the mid-infrared or maybe even in the in the far infrared. Um, and so there's there's actually there's also, for example, the the exoplanet research, which of course has been very successful in detecting planets around other stars. But of course, you can use the same technique to 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 look for megastructures, you know, structures that have been built by advanced civilizations around around their star to potentially, for example, collect energy or or maybe for manufacturing or maybe for computing. Um, so so you would also see that in the light curves of stars, um, you would you would see these kind of effects. So I think it's sort of um, I think it's important to to think about how extraterrestrial civilizations potentially can affect the data that astronomers um, use to do astronomy and to do astrophysics. That we we shouldn't sort of forget that there might be some non-natural effects in the data. So what you're saying is that if if we are to use astronomical data to find extraterrestrial intelligence they're doing something that's markedly different to what we're capable of doing, as you say, with using um, manufacturing around a, a sun. Yeah, I mean, I think it, you know, the more advanced the civilization is, you're, you're kind of making an assumption that the the more difficult it is for them to hide. So, I, I mean, as, as you suggest, we are probably not terribly visible uh, in the in the universe, although the radio waves that we've been generating for the last 50, 60 years, you know, and potentially, you know, they're strong enough to be detected at fairly large distances, but they haven't gone very far yet. You know, they're only sort of 60 light years beyond um, the, the Earth at the moment, so they haven't really traveled so very far. Um, but even even we, we're not an advanced civilization by any means. Um, but at some level, we are also producing some effects that um, might be detectable by a really advanced civilization that might have very sensitive instruments, very sensitive radio telescopes, for example. So you, you'd assume that uh, an alien civilization that's capable of detecting the signals that we've got is is going to be more advanced and how long will it be before realistically they are the ones that are looking at us as opposed to us looking for them? Well, uh, you know, as, as I said, we've only been sending out artificial signals like radio signals, at least strong ones for the last 60, 70 years. So um, I guess we are detectable within that sphere of, of, 70, of 70 light years. But, you know, I think at least my own feeling is that intelligent life is probably quite rare 
in the in the Milky Way, um, our own galaxy, probably quite rare, you know, full stop. Um, so that you know, there there probably aren't very many sort of technically advanced civilizations within the radio bubble that we have created so far. So I, I suspect the chances of us being detected um, at the moment are are probably limited. I just I'm picturing the the beginning. I think the film is Contact, where it's got the uh, the radio waves at the beginning, and as the further out it gets, the further back in time uh, you're getting of that signal. Um, yeah. So so realistically, aliens a long way away are going to get like the earliest signals signals for us essentially. They, they they probably could be very far away. So you know we we may be talking about you know ten thousand light years from from here. Which means they'll they'll see us as we were ten thousand years ago, um, and and well, the way things are going at the moment, you would be surprised if if we are still around ten thousand years from now. So uh, it could be that we we've already become extinct at some level, at least as a sort of advanced technical, well, not an advanced, but as a technical civilization. Um, we might have already sort of been and, and come and. And gone. So could that be the same the other way? If we if we spot something uh, using astronomical data, that could actually be of a civilization that's actually not existed for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it might not be there. So uh, um, it's a bit it's a bit disappointing. But the the scale of space, the scale of our own galaxy, is is so huge, um, and probably intelligent life is is so rare. So. We mean there could be hundreds of intelligent um, technical civilizations in the Milky Way galaxy, but they're still separated by thousands of light years, um, and that makes it difficult to to detect them um, because they're rare. So the signals are not all over the sky; they're only coming from particular sort of small locations on the sky. Um, and of course. Um, having a conversation, if you're separated by 10,000 light years, then um, that becomes pretty impossible to have a conversation. You could pick up perhaps if they're if they're broadcasting, you know, their encyclopedias, um, you could record those, but you couldn't actually have a conversation with the people that had, or the beings that had created created those encyclopedias. That would be difficult. So the message is: uh, Do you, are we ourselves sending out messages, and have we designed something like I know on Voyager there was the golden record, which was, you know, practically anyone who gets that's going to be as confused as anything. But are we sending out some sort of message which is going to sort of give any form of alien or extraterrestrial intelligence a chance to understand us a bit better? No, we we have in the past um, sent out messages. Uh, and some of those messages have been designed so that they should be, you know, in, interpretable by other other sort of civilizations if they were to come across them. Um, so I think Frank Drake, for example, in the in the 1970s, sent a message with the with the Arecibo telescope, and it was a message really designed to try and describe who we are and what we're like and and what we do. Um, using quite a lot of maths and science as a sort of basic um, building blocks towards more complicated ideas. So that ha- has happened, but you know, really, very rarely has it happened. Have we actually deliberately sent out messages um, with content 
but of course, we're we're sending out messages, you know, every day with our own radio waves. Um, when we transmit to to the spacecraft in the in the solar system, we're sending out pretty powerful radio signals that would be sort of easily identified as being artificial in nature. So not something that would be that, that's been generated by you know, stars or galaxies, but something that's clearly has intelligence behind them because they have a very narrow band sort of um, signature, very, very narrow frequency channels. Um, so, so we're doing that all the time when we talk to the Voyager spacecraft um, and, and, and New Horizons and all these other spacecraft that have really small antennas. Um, so they need to receive powerful signals at the at the edge of the solar system. Um, so those signals go beyond those spacecraft. They go out into the, the the edges of the solar system and beyond, and in principle would be detectable, um, but wouldn't have much content in them. Mostly designed for Voyager and New Horizons yeah. to listen to. Yeah. So when you say uh, a moment ago, you were talking about the the. the the conversations essentially that we'd have, we would actually, what we would be doing is we would be listening to what they're saying and they would be listening to what we would be saying with not really much chance of a conversation happening there. I think so. I mean, if if intelligent life, and, and, and I might be wrong, I mean, the, the good thing about this business is that I think everyone has, um, you know, uh, entitled to an opinion on it because we have we have no idea whether intelligent life or technical civilizations are are widespread in the galaxy or whether they're actually quite rare. Um, so um, you know, but if they if they are out there, um, I I have a feeling that they're rare, and that's partly because we haven't detected anything so far. Um, and if they're rare, then you know the Milky Way is just so big. You know, it's a hundred thousand light years across. And the speed of light is so slow, you know, we, we always think of the speed of light as being, you know, incredibly fast. For us, it's it's almost instantaneous, you know. You see someone move and that's, that's instantaneous because light travels fast for us. But when you're trying to communicate on scales, not across a room or, you know, across the Earth's surface, but when you start communicating across the galaxy, then things become difficult. You even see it with a mobile phone. You know, if a mobile phone has a large delay and you're trying to speak to, to someone in Australia, even a few seconds delay makes conversation quite difficult. So you can imagine if you had 10,000 years of a delay between conversations, it becomes impossible. So what are the chances then of 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 actually, even if it's not conversational, even if it's just us, two civilizations, ourselves and another one, what are the chances of that actually happening at the same time? Um, well, it, for it to happen at the same time, and if I'm right that these civilizations are quite real, then it means they have they've had to have been existing for a long time. You know, they've had to have been sending out radio waves for a long time. They have to have been doing that, and we have to have been doing that. So you're probably you're probably talking about if this occurs, you're probably talking about two fairly advanced civilizations, um, sort of in 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 this in this scenario, um, rather than you know a fledgling technical civilization like ourselves, where um, you know there just hasn't been enough time for our signals to reach um, any any other civilization if if those civilizations are rare and listening as well. Yeah, and 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 listening and pointing in the right direction and uh, this is what makes it I mean SETI is a very very difficult thing 
and, and to detect signals. Um, you know, the, the 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 telescopes that we have, even even in the radio, they only see a tiny fraction of the sky. Uh, and so um, there's a lot of things we miss, even in astronomy. We miss, you know, 99.99% of, you know, all transients in the sky, um, in the radio, just because our telescopes don't cover enough of the sky. They, they cover a tiny amount of the sky. And if you multiply that fraction by the potential possibility that intelligent life is is rare anyway, then then the detection of those signals becomes very difficult with current technology. And it may change, you know, if we have, we, we are moving towards, you know, radio telescopes with much wider fields of view, being able to see a much larger area of the sky. I, I suspect we, we won't make any detections until we have a kind of all-sky radio telescope that sees all of the sky instantaneously. And that's, that's, quite, a way, that's quite a way off. What would we need to be able to have a, an all-sky telescope? A huge computer and an enormous budget for electricity. <laughs> Some, uh, <laughs> so, uh, talking about um, huge budgets, like you've, there's just been a—is uh, it 100 million dollars or that's been invested into SETI through Breakthrough Listen? Yeah. What's that money going to be used for? Presumably, that's not going to be enough to build the big <laughs> sky telescope. That's that's not going to be enough to <laughs> to do what what I would like to do. But um, I think it's an important first step because up until now, SETI has been very kind of ad hoc. Um, people get excited about building equipment to do SETI because it's it's quite an interesting pursuit in terms of the the engineering challenges. Um, uh, some astronomers, not all, but some astronomers get excited by the idea of getting that hardware and then going and doing surveys. Um, fewer people actually get excited about analyzing the huge amounts of data that, that these kind of surveys generate. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot of data out there that probably has never been actually looked at at some level and it's all just been a bit of a, a a bit ad hoc you know some pockets of private funding in the US for example um coming and then disappearing and going through good times and bad times uh and i think what breakthrough lesson does is that it, it provides a nice base level of funding that really allows very systematic surveys to be done now, using the using the best telescopes um, on the planet, uh, and I think that's a major major step forward. And 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 to to publish the results as well in in refereed scientific journals, that's another big step forward. So you see a lot of publications coming out by the Breakthrough Listen, the the group in Berkeley. Um, so 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 these are very positive things. We need to we need to take this. We need to build upon it. I, I don't think it's going to detect a SETI signal. I might be wrong, but at least it's the first sort of real systematic attempt of using the best technologies um, and, and the best survey techniques to do the best possible job. Um, so I, I'm very positive about the project. So it's going to have the best equipment and investment in it. But then, you know, as you say, it's very rare the chance of it actually happening. So 
really, why are we doing it? Why are we investing so much money in it? And why are we actually, in the grand scheme of things, looking for extraterrestrial communications? Um, well, of course, it's, uh, the breakthrough lesson is, is, is basically uh, Yuri Milner's um, baby, and, and, and he's decided to fund it, and he's a billionaire. So um, it's up to him what he does with his money. I, I, I think it's a good idea. Um, you know, the, perhaps a pessimist, well, I'm not a pessimist, but 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 maybe I think the chances of success are are limited. But at the same time, I don't know everything, and and and, and no one, as I said before, everyone has a valid opinion on on this topic, and there are many people who probably think the chances are much higher than I personally think. And and coupled with that, the fact that you know, if you do make that discovery. Then I think it's one of the it's one of the biggest things you know that would that, that we as a species would, would ever have achieved, and I think it would change a lot of things about how we think about our, ourselves and our place in the in the galaxy and in the universe. Um, it would it would it would raise a lot of interesting questions and at some level for me if we made a made a detection that that would be that would be pretty mind-blowing i think it would change the way i personally look at the universe at the moment you know as an astronomer i see a universe in which the data are um, completely described by sort of natural phenomena and the application of astrophysics it's a it's amazing how well you know physics in the laboratory applies to physics in the universe um, I, 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 it, it's sort of like the Fermi paradox in a sense. So you sh- should it really be like that? It seems very unusual to me that the universe, you know, doesn't have some artifacts out there that are associated with other advanced civilizations. Um, we don't see that at all in any of the data at the moment, but maybe we haven't gone deep enough. Maybe as our instruments get better, you know, the possibilities of making those detections, um, you know, increase. Would you be able to just describe what the, the Fermi paradox is in this situation? So I think that, well, everyone has a different idea of what the <laughs> Fermi paradox is. But for me, I think it it says that, you know, we, we have a set of laws of, of, of physics. Uh, and if there are civilizations out there and if they live long enough, so much longer than, than our civilization, technical civilization has lived, which is only a few hundred years old. But if, you know, they have technical civilizations that maybe last for 10,000 years, for example, or 50,000 years, and they continue to understand physics better and to be able to build technology, um, there's no reason why those civilizations can't go from one star to the next star. And, and they don't have to do it sort of incredibly fast. You know, if they if they populate one star and then go out to a few others and it's a sort of avalanche effect if, if, if these different civilizations colonize more and more stars. Um, and, and if that happens, if there are advanced civilizations and they're capable of interstellar travel, then in, 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 in the order of a galactic rotation, um, you know, which is something like, 10 to the 5, 10, no, sorry, 100,000, a few hundred thousand years, you can populate large areas of the of the Milky Way. And the question is, if such civilizations are out there, you know, why don't we see them? Why, why haven't we seen them here? Why haven't they visited the solar system? You know, if you look at the solar system, uh, 
the solar system I find incredibly disappointing. Um, you go to Mars, for example, and you know there's a, it's absolutely pristine. It's clear the only rubbish that's left uh, around there are all the spacecraft that we've sent there and their parachutes and their uh, re-entry shields, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, apart from that, the place is pristine, and in the same goes for all the for all the, the the planets and the moons that we've visited in the solar system. Again, they're all well described by just natural phenomena. There's no evidence that our solar system was ever visited. Um, by an advanced civilization. We don't see any evidence for things that were left behind. Our own moon, for example, we have high-resolution images of the moon down to, you know, uh, you know, I guess about 10 centimeters. We can see the footprints almost of, of the astronauts that walked on the moon. We can see the, the descent stage of the lunar module and the lunar rovers, etc. But everything that we see, and we've got good resolution, everything we see... Um, comes from us. There's no evidence that anyone else has has visited us or or the solar system. And, and if if advanced civilizations are out there, and if they've mastered interstellar space travel, which they should, because there's there's nothing in physics that says that that's not possible, then that raises a question. You know, where are they? Why aren't Why aren't they here? Is it because, as you say, our solar system and probably us as a species being not as technologically advanced, we're just not interesting enough? Could be. Could be. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, if we look at the exoplanetary systems that we are, I mean, the, the exoplanetary surveys that are being done at the moment, they're a bit biased. So um, they're biased towards finding sort of big planets in general and planets that are close to the to the host star because we use the eclipsing technique to to detect them. But it, it looks as though our own solar system, although there's, as I say, there's lots of biases, it looks as though our, our own solar system is actually quite interesting. You know, you have these rocky, these small rocky planets in the central part of the solar system and these big gas giants on the on the outer side, uh, the outer part of the, of the solar system. So at some level, we, we might actually be quite unusual and so we might actually be quite interesting, I think, at least to an astronomer. <laughs> so, um, so obviously that sort of takes away the 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 logic behind things like UFO sightings and all and all that. That's not really, that's sort of not not really there, is it? Well, I, I mean, I haven't investigated these things myself, but um, I know people who have, and people who have spent a lot of time actually, um, you know, looking in into this because I think, you know, you, you shouldn't just accept things for, you know, what you've read in a book or, you know, what your your professor tells you or whatever. You Sometimes you have to go out and do things yourself, but it, it, it takes a lot of time. And I, certainly I know respected scientists that have had a look into, you know, the UFO conspiracy and, and, and UFOs. And, and I, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that there are unidentified flying objects. Um, Around the around the Earth, and and the fact that you know we've all got these fantastic mobile devices, and I don't know about about you, but I've never seen anything that suggested any good photographs of these objects. It's still all word of mouth, etc. So um, you'd think nowadays we'd have great movies and films and pictures of of these phenomena, but we don't. We just have to rely on sci-fi for that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, sort of verging in on the verging in on the realms of sci-fi, when we do 
or if, or let's just say when, for the sake of um, uh, argument, when we do detect a signal from an alien civilization, um, what happens? What's the protocol then? So there's a, so I, actually I, one of the things that I do is I, I serve as one of the co-chair people of um, what's called the SETI Permanent Committee. It sort of sits under the International um, Astronautics Association. Um, and and we have drawn up a, what we think are sort of a set of protocols that people are advised to use if they're involved in, in, in SETI science or SETI research. Um, so, you know, if you were if you if you're to discover a signal, then you know I think the first thing that you would do is you would absolutely have to convince yourself that this was an artificial signal, that there was no possible or obvious natural explanation to it, that it could only really be fit by you know some artificial um, sort of um, explanation. Uh, and once you were absolutely sure that this was a sort of bona fide potential detection of a of a SETI signal, um, the next step in the protocols um, is that you should um, give the coordinates to another independent observatory and ask them to to check up on your observation. Do they see the same thing, for example? Um, and of course, the, it, it, these observations have to be independent, so it would be quite nice if, for example, if you're using a radio telescope to make your discovery here in the UK, that you might use a, a telescope to follow that up in the United States or in Australia, well separated in, in, in geography. Um, and then if they came back and say, yep, we've, we've, we've seen the same signal and we, we come to the, the, the same conclusions, then um, I think the, the next step is that you should inform, um, I think, uh, uh, someone in the United Nations. Um, who's the Who's the top guy in the United Nations? <laughs> I've forgotten. <laughs> um, the president of the United Nations, whatever whatever that might be, um, of your of your discovery. General is it um, the secretary? I think secretary general. That's it. The secretary general of the United Nations. Um, and then from that point onwards. Um, I think, you know, you would be, I'm sure people would be, you know, writing papers to nature, for example, uh, and I guess they would be submitting them to nature um, at that point after informing the, the United Nations. Now, that's that's a whole kind of set of, of, of protocols. There's also protocols about how you bring you know what? What would be the the way you bring this message over to the public in terms of press releases, etc. Um, but I, I suspect that's not how it's going to work out. You know, if we ever really have a SETI signal, then it'll be some pulsar astronomer that has, has never thought about SETI before. Um, you know, or some other kind of astronomer in the X-rays or gamma rays or or, or whatever who doesn't know anything about the SETI protocols and makes the discovery and sends out on Twitter or Facebook or something like that. So uh, so I'm not sure the protocols actually have, have well, I probably shouldn't say that they don't have any value, but um, I think the way this will, a discovery will, will be made will, will be so different from what we expect that they may not be fully relevant. <laughs> so the, 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 it's, it's discovered, so essentially the, the, the message is found. What, 
sort of thing will it be? Do, will it be a communication to us or will it just be, you know, uh, noise that's come from their activities? Um, yeah, who knows? I mean, if it's a radio signal, then the, the nice thing about the radio signals is that um, at least the way we communicate in the radio is that we usually have what's called a kind of carrier wave, which is a very sort of narrow band spike. It, it has it has power in, in, in a few frequency channels, so very narrow frequency range. So th- that's pretty easy to pick up. So that's what Voyager sends to us and we send back to Voyager. And then all the data comes in a much broader sort of band of frequencies, much lower power. But the, the carrier signal is a thing you lock onto. And it's very easy to distinguish the carrier signal um, compared to just the sort of galactic background of noise, etc. So I think you'd be looking for something that was that kind of obvious, um, you know, some narrow band sort of um, radio frequency signal in the radio. Um, and in the other areas, you know, like the exoplanets, then, you know, if you if you discovered a, me- a megastructure, then you'd be looking for signs that whatever was passing in front of the star was not sort of spherically symmetric, the way planets are. Um, and uh, that would also be a, a very obvious signal, you know, if it was some huge space station and passing in front of a of a star, um, you'd you'd probably be able to tell that quite easily because it's unlikely to be symmetric. For example, what about something like a uh, like a Dyson sphere, which is sort of covering the star, as it were, to harness the energy from it? Is, would that sort of signal? What sort of signal would that send out? That would suggest there's life there. Yeah. Yeah, so the, so there you would be looking in the in the infrared part of the spectrum, probably the mid infrared or the or the far infrared. So, uh, you know, twenty microns, ten microns, five microns, something micrometers, something something at those kind of wavelengths. Um, so, I mean, the thing that one of the reasons that I think advanced, at least advanced civilizations. When I'm saying things that, you know, intelligent life is rare, I'm, I'm typically talking about advanced civilizations being rare. And, and one of the reasons that I think that is that Dyson spheres are something like a Dyson sphere. They, they make quite a lot of sense, you know. They're, they're very efficient. You know, the stars are very efficient at producing energy, and it's it's just a matter of having some kind of bucket to, to pick up. You know the, the 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 energy from the from the star, but if you have that bucket, if you have a lot of those buckets around stars, then they begin to to heat up, um, and when they heat up, they pro- they produce this sort of emission in the in the infrared. And when we've looked, you know, we looked through you know different infrared satellite surveys, we don't see any evidence for those kind of advanced civilizations. Um, not in our own galaxy, and and also not in the in the sort of the, the the local part of the of the universe here, where there are many galaxies. We don't see sort of Kardashev type two civilizations uh, evidence for that, or Kardashev type three civilizations. No evidence for that. Um, and that that's one of the things that makes me think that you know at least these advanced civilizations must be incredibly rare, or they, or they just don't do things that we want to do. You know, they just don't have you know very high energy needs. You know, maybe they, they just sit at home, um, having great thoughts, <laughs> sitting on Twitter and Facebook. Is <laughs> well, if they if they have Twitter and Facebook, that would suggest that they probably like energy. So you know, maybe they're just meditating. Mm. Um, <laughs> would they be? What would they be meditating on? Uh, for example, if we did decide to communicate, we decided to send them a message. 
what what sort of things would that be? What they would meditate on if we sent <laughs> a message. I have no idea. I suppose, you know, as we said before, they're probably advanced civilizations, so they've probably had their their own history. Um, perhaps they 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 grew up or evolved on a planet much like this planet. So they've they've probably gone through all the challenges that we seem to be going through at the moment. Um, you know, you called me today. I think it was you know yesterday was one of the warmest days in in many um, cities in the UK. Yesterday, warmest days in June or or even in the summer. Um, you know, so they have their own challenges. They probably went through global warming. You know, using carbon-based fuels at some point, and then if they if they advanced beyond that, they probably moved on to something else. So I guess if there was any information content on the signal that we were sending, like a TV signal, um, it would be very interesting for them to see how we were evolving. In fact, they they might already know, you know, whether we're on the slippery road to disaster. Or, or, or whether we can go beyond some of the challenges that we that we have at the moment, population growth, um, uh, global warming, uh, rising of sea levels, the the fact that we are producing sort of artificial intelligent machines and sort of letting them loose amongst the populace. That's probably going to happen in the next 10, 15 years that we don't have many safeguards built in for all sorts of things like, um, you know, modification of DNA and designer babies. And, you know, we have a few sort of interesting politicians um, here and elsewhere who I think are making life very difficult. Um, all those things. So, so they might already know just by looking at us, having this snapshot of us in the year 2018, whether it's a thumbs up or whether it's a thumbs down. Is it sort of like the, the great filter, as it were? Well, yeah, I mean, and, and and I think there are such, I think there probably are such things, you know. It's amazing that we haven't blown ourselves up, you know, with nuclear war um, or at least set ourselves back, you know, maybe 100 years. Um, so so we know that there are such such filters there. And we, what we don't know is whether we can pass through them or not. With that, everything that we're doing with SETI, with everything that we're searching for aliens and we're, we're looking out for the terrestrial communication... And we just don't find it, and we can't find it. What is what? What can we learn from all of this searching, and what what do we get out of it, even if ultimately we don't find anyone out there? So I think if we don't find anyone out there, I think first of all, if, if that was really true, if there's if there's no other intelligent life forms even in our own galaxy, I think that would be that would be pretty startling. You know, that would say that there's something. Um, very rare about about us. Um, very, something even you know very special perhaps about us, which goes against all kind of scientific thinking, which usually sort of invokes the the sort of Copernican principle or the so-called principle of mediocrity. You know that that one part of the galaxy is just as good as any other part, and there's nothing special about us. I think if we if we knew for sure that there were no other intelligent life forms in the even just in our own galaxy. Um, I think that would suggest that, you know, that principle of mediocrity didn't actually apply, at least in in this particular case of of, of intelligent life. And I think that would be surprising at at, at some level. Um, and I think it would be telling us that, you know, maybe there is something special about us and and maybe we need to to realize that we need to kind of work hard in trying to, you know, keep going to keep this civilization sustainable, that we we need to stop 
trying to somehow exponentially um, expand in all different directions. We have to become more sustainable. We we have to forget about borders between between countries. We have to look look after each other. Um, not just people, you know, that are in our family, but people that we meet in the streets, um, and people that we 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 talk to in other countries that that, that need our help. That if we don't do those kind of things, then you know maybe we will disappear very quickly as well, and there'll be absolutely no intelligent life in the in the galaxy or in the in the universe. And I think that would be that would be quite sad. The search for extraterrestrial life is sort of philosophical about our own humanity, as it were. I think so. And and if you see the kind of people that are involved in SETI and that are interested in SETI, you 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 probably come across, you know, people that um maybe the most visible are those that are actually searching for signals, you know, radio astronomers typically or astronomers in general. Um but you see that there's a there's a huge interest in SETI um that brings um people from all sorts of different backgrounds to think about some of some of the aspects that the question raises. You know, the you know, theology for example, you know, we have lots of religions here on earth and they they have some pretty solid ideas about our place in the universe and maybe even some ideas about, you know, intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. You know, so if you made a detection, you know, it might it might change things in all sorts of different topics. And and there's also culture, you know, the different cultures and how different cultures think about the, you know, the universe and and what's out there. There's artists who are very sort of challenged by some of these thoughts. Um, even lawyers who think about, you know, how do you engage with other civilization? Linguists that think about, you know, how do you communicate from species that are maybe intelligent but have had a completely different evolutionary path and maybe even think in completely different ways. So SETI just just ticks a lot of boxes for a lot of really interesting interesting topics. So it, it goes beyond just the detection of a signal. It, it, it's really all-encompassing in, in, in addressing all sorts of fascinating topics and questions, I think. That was the director of Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, Mike Garrett, speaking about the search for extraterrestrial communication. You can hear him talk at this year's Dot Talks at Blue Dot Festival, which starts on the 19th of July. You can find out more at discovertheblue.com. Did you enjoy this podcast? If you liked what you heard, then why not subscribe and leave us a review? You can find us on iTunes, Acast, Stitcher, and many of your favourite podcast apps. This podcast is made by the team behind BBC Focus magazine. In our summer issue, which is on sale now, we dive deep into the science of laziness. We also talk to some experts about the threat of space war, and we meet two men trying to create an Ice Age Jurassic Park in the middle of Siberia, and of course, much, much more. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.